0: depth, the background of darkness in order to see the light and so we need to feel the darkness in order to experience light and so you see on the outline that Isaiah chapter 9 is all about the triumph of God but God prepares his people to hear of that triumph because Isaiah is showing us In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, something new. But there's a preparation. And that preparation is, in fact, in the previous chapter, in chapter 8. If you want to open up to Isaiah chapter 8 and 9. Because what we read in the book of Isaiah, particularly in chapter 8, is that God is preparing his people. And he's preparing, in fact, a small section of people. A faithful section, a remnant. And what he's doing, as we read in Isaiah chapter 8, is he's preserving. He's preserving their, these people. And he's preserving these people not because their lives are easy or things are going well. No, in fact, for the people of God in Isaiah chapter 8, it's absolute chaos, it's darkness. But these people, remarkably, these small number of people, this faithful remnant, They're shining in the darkness. It's hard for us, isn't it? Uh, In a lot of ways, when our lives are going well, when things are all as they should be, it feels right to praise God. But this is not the situation for God's people. They're, in fact, for this faithful remnant. They're shining in the darkness. There's a contrast between their experience chaos and the reality of their lives. A very helpful Christian thinker man called Jonathan Edwards thinks about the Christian life as one of contrast, of one of light coming out of darkness. He says this about the Christian. He says, As he has more holy boldness, he has less self-confidence. He has the firmest of comfort, but the softest of heart, richer than others, but poorest of all in spirit. He's the tallest and strongest saint, but the least and tenderest child among them. As Edwards conceives of the Christian, he conceives of the contrast of shining in the middle of darkness. And I don't know when you, if you heard that description. It's, it's a beautiful description, isn't it? Um, And the question for us is, does it describe us? Does it describe us just a little? This remnant uh, first known in verses 9 and 10 there in Isaiah chapter 8. So why don't you have a look there at Isaiah chapter 8 verse 9. It says, Raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands, prepare for battle. And be shattered. Devise your strategy, but it will not be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand, for God is with us. This comes from the mouths of these faithful Christians. When King Ahaz and his people were told of the situation, their hearts shook. We're told back in chapter 7, verse 2. The situation for God's people is that the enemy is on the way. They're coming from the north. The Assyrians are coming to God's people. And there's two reactions. There's one of preparation. There's one of trust. And there's one of fear and disbelief. These faithful, these faithful few, they are defiant because they're actually experiencing God in the middle of this chaos. Have a look there in verse 10. It's kind of, in verse 10, it's like the faithful remnant are saying, we don't care what the situation is. We don't care what the strategies of the enemy are. If God is with us, Bring it on. Propose your plan. Do your worst. But it will not stand. Verse 10. This small group of people are a people of hope in the middle of darkness. And their orientation is towards God. Two types of people. Both in Israel. Two very different responses. One of trust in God. One of fear. Secondly, we see as God is preparing for the wonder of Isaiah chapter 9 that truth precedes triumph. In Ahaz, in his day, the truth of God's word was not valued. You see there in verse 16, bind up the testimony and seal up the law among my disciples. What Isaiah is talking about here is he, is he wants to preserve the word of God. The word of God is this neglected wisdom But it needs to be held, if not for this generation, for the generations to come who will listen. See, this faithful remnant are shining in the middle of darkness because they're connected to God's word. They're finding hope in God himself because they're connected to his word. Verse 17, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. As we read the scriptures, friends, we come into contact with words of hope, with the very words that we need in our lives. One 16th century writer, as he put together the introduction to a New Testament, he wrote this about the pages on the New Testament. He says, on these pages you will find the living Christ and you will see him more fully and more clearly than if he stood before you, before your very eyes. What we have in the word of God is the promises of God. And we can only shine in the middle of darkness when we're clinging to the promises that come from God's word. Fourthly, tragedy precedes triumph. In chapter 8, as the enemy is coming upon God's people in judgment, People will consult in their frightened, frantic lives. They'll consult everyone but God, verse 19. They'll consult mediums who whisper and mutter. But that leads to a complete chaos there. If you look at chapter 8, verses 21, distressed and hungry, they're famished, 22. Then they look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter Darkness. Here's the context. Here's the background for Isaiah chapter 9. It's the tragedy. It's a tragedy of unbelief. It's a tragedy of chaos. It's a tragedy of people neglecting the word of God. But what's remarkable about Isaiah chapter 9 is in that darkness... In that tragedy is the very pivot for the triumph of God. Chapter 8 finishes with that picture, that dark picture, verse 22, glooms of anguish. But remarkably, chapter 9, verse 1, there is this shift. Have a look there, chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. No more gloom for who? For those whose lives are perfect, who don't feel any pain, who don't know the chaos of the world around them? No. There will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, we see that Isaiah is projecting the present as if it were the past. He writes this prophecy about the future, but he writes it as if it's already happened because for Isaiah, as he engaged with God, as God gave him this vision and this prophecy, it was as certain as it had already happened. And Isaiah has this privilege. They're in the darkness, they're staring into the darkness and the gloom, as I remarkably sees light. He sees hope, and a certain hope, not a wishful kind of thinking, gee, I wish things would get better for me and God's people. No, he sees something dramatic, something incredible that God is doing. He's seeing with the eyes of faith. He's seeing the triumph of God. He's seeing that God is coming into this darkness. Have a look there in verses one and two, because God came to his people first where they suffered the most. And from that place, from that very worst of places, salvation is launched to the whole world. You'll see there in verses, uh, verse one there, the northern parts of Israel are referred to, Zebulun and Nephthali. Now, if the invaders are coming from the north, These towns, Zebulun and Nephali, guess where they are? They're in the north. So they're on the front line. They're the very first to be affected. They're the canary in the cage, so to speak. But here we're told that God will turn the misery of this imminent invasion and oppression God will turn that darkness and give light in the middle of it. In Matthew chapter 4, Matthew picks up on this picture because Jesus is up in the north. You know, he's not where the action is. Down in Jerusalem, that's where all the important people are. That's the CBD, that's the city, that's where where the intelligentsia, the educated, the wealthy are, but Jesus is up north with the country people, those on the margins of proper society, those who are uneducated, those who are uncouth, those who are poor. But this is how Matthew conceives of what Jesus is doing. He's just walking in the northern regions of Israel, around the lake. Matthew thinks about it in this way in chapter 4, verse 12. When Jesus heard that John was put in prison, he returned to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness, have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned as those uneducated masses in the north saw Jesus by the lake. The ones walking in darkness found themselves blinking, blinking startled with the sheer magnitude of the light that was confronting their darkness, a light that they had never seen before and a light that they knew would never fade. You see, triumph comes first. It comes in from the darkness, but it comes first. To the northern regions. But secondly, as triumph comes, it is growing and it is joyous. Have a look there in verse 3. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 3, this light which first came to the north starts to spread in Isaiah's mind. It's spreading. And it's growing and the number of people who are seeing this light are increasing. There's this sense in verse three of of it coming and of it multiplying. This small number, this remnant, are not so small anymore, they're multiplying into a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages. Revelation seven and as it grows it grows to all people and when it comes to all people it brings verse 3 a joy a joy a joy that's so real so real it's like payday that's how isaiah conceives of it conceives of it of it. it it's payday it's it's that time of harvest when all the work all the sweat blood and tears pays off and those vegetables are picked or that grain is harvested. It's that excitement that Isaiah is talking about. It's a real excitement. It's a real joy that this light is bringing in the middle of the darkness. But how? How does this light bring such unbridled joy? Well, three times we're told in verses 4, 5 and 6... the word for is used. And I think it's explaining this joy. In Isaiah, verse, in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 4, Isaiah thinks of the first reason why this light brings such joy is it's, it's like being rescued. It's like being rescued from prison. Isaiah is thinking of a leader coming A freedom fighter, one like Gideon, who would break the powers of the oppressors. And you see there in verse 4 what happens when he comes? The darkness has brought a weight upon people's shoulders. It's a burden that they're bearing. It's an oppression that is felt. I used to do a bit of bushwalking hiking at school. And um, one of the things we used to do is we, try, we would try and sneak rocks into each other's backpacks. You know, when you're kind of been walking the whole day and then you, uh, you realise as you open your pack that someone has stuffed three or four kilograms worth of rocks in your backpack. And it's, it's an amazing feeling after a whole day of walking with this thing on your back, just to lift it off, knowing that you don't have to put that on again for the rest of the day. And friends, that's what Isaiah is thinking of. He's thinking of people so weighed down, so burdened, so oppressed. And he's saying, there will be one who comes to lift. You don't take it off. He will lift. See, there it's described how this will happen. Why does it say, as on the day of Midian? It's odd, isn't it? Well, it says, as on the day of Midian, because Gideon broke the powers of the Midianites, you know, just like Gideon. But here, here's why I think Isaiah adds that detail. You see, people are walking in darkness. Some have left God. They can't hold on to those promises in the middle of that darkness. They can't see what God is doing. Because when God is work when God is at work, it's hard to see. I don't know if you feel that. You know that God is at work in our world, you know that God is at work in your life. Sometimes that's hard to see, hard to see at first. See, what God did with Gideon, he did in the most unlikely, counterintuitive way. He brought about a victory. He brought about a victory from the oppression of the enemies of God's people in Judges 6 and 7. And Israel had this army of 32,000 people. And what would you think? If God was going to bring about a victory, he'd grow that army. He'd double it. He'd triple it. But you know what he does? He shrinks it. 32,000 shrinks to 300 men. And God uses the unlikely, the unconceivable to bring about his victory. See, Isaiah is imagining a time where He will come, when God will come. And it won't look as though God has come. It won't look as though God is doing anything. But for those who have eyes of faith, they will see that this liberator has come, not to defeat all the forces of evil, in fact, to put an end to all conflict itself. Every mechanism of tyranny and oppression will be burned, verse 5, in the bonfire. And it will be burned. It will be burned. That's a a whisper to us. That's a whisper to us that in the middle of pain and anguish and darkness, verse 5, it will be burned. But it's not our victory. We haven't taken the backpack off ourselves. He has. He steps into the battle. He wins the battle. And we, Behind him enjoy its fruits. Fourthly, the who of triumph in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. God's answer to his people ultimately, who are terrorized, who are oppressed, is there in verse 6. His answer is a child. For us, a child is born, to us, a son is given. As conceives the power of God turning the tables of our world. And he does it remarkably in a way that's quite familiar to us, but it's remarkable in its context because it's a baby that's going to push back these enemy oppressors. It's a helpless one who's going into war. And this one who was born is far superior to the enemies of Isaiah's day, the Assyrians. And we know, as Christian people, that this one that we celebrate at Christmas, who is born, is far superior to the forces of evil that assail us. See, God's answer to the bullies of our world is not a bigger, stronger bully. His answer is Jesus, and. At Christmas, what we want to do is we want to get close to Jesus. We want to get close enough to see who Jesus is. We want to be close enough to see the raw potential that Jesus has to overturn the darkness of our world and the darkness of our lives. Because what happens when we see Jesus as he really is? What happens when we get close to him? Well, our expectations are inverted. We're not wanting a bigger army. We know that God can do it with 300. Against the expectations of our world, we start to see that weakness is an overwhelming power. We start to see that foolishness is as superior to wisdom in God's hands. And this is how we know we're starting to encounter. We're starting to encounter the real Jesus. At Christmas, when he starts to change and flip the categories of our mind, the things that we think that will give us hope and healing, he starts to turn them upside down and starts to bring us joy. Because at Christmas, what we're doing is we're following this triumphant king, the one who has come in the middle of darkness, the darkness of our world, the darkness of our lives. And at Christmas, what we want to do is we just want to look at Jesus. We want to look at him and see that he is a wonderful counsellor, that it's his strategies and it's his advice that we most need. We want to hide in Jesus this Christmas because behind him is the defeat of our enemies. We want to enjoy Jesus this Christmas. We want to enjoy him the way he brings us to the Father, in endless love. And we want to rest in Jesus this Christmas because we want to rest in him as the Prince of Peace who reconciles us, who were still his enemies in our sin. See, this child that we celebrate tonight, that we'll celebrate on Christmas, he's not merely a cute kid in a manger. This child is the king to end all kings, saving us from our failures, lifting us into his justice. He's Christ the Lord. He is our crucified, risen, reigning and coming Saviour. And he will return as we celebrate his coming the first time. We now, this side of his first coming, are called to consider his second coming because when he comes for a second time, he won't come just to tweak and adjust or recalibrate our world, he'll come to utterly transform it. And one of the best parts of this prophecy, I think, is verse seven. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. See, the empire of this baby, who is the king, the empire is his empire of grace. And it's forever expanding. And as we trust in him, despite our circumstances, as the faithful of old did, as we shine in the middle of darkness, we will be there one day to enjoy his triumph, his ever-ascending, ever-enlarging, ever-intensifying triumph, because there will be no end. Amen. We're going to stand and sing.